We're broadcasting live from uh, Canada's uh, largest rib fest. We are at Spencer Smith Park in Burlington. It is an absolute beautiful day to be down here on the lake. And uh, a slight breeze bl uh, blowing through the place, uh, which enables you to see one end from the other as opposed to the smoke from the ribs that seems to billow out of this place. Just follow your nose. You'll get here. Today on the Scott Thompson Show on 900 CHML. Uh, a lot of chatter. Kids getting back to school. This, of course, the Labor Day weekend. It's the last big one before uh, the kids head back and we get back to normal. Uh, there's a cell phone ban that takes place. We talked about this about six months ago, and it will come into place. I or come into play, I believe, uh, November 1st to give people the time to adjust to all of this. Uh, and basically, the rules are, from what I understand, uh, you cannot use a cell phone in class unless it is for educational purposes. Or, uh, of course, an emergency uh, health reason, safety reason, or, uh, or or any sort of help that's needed in that way, a special uh, scenario. So to find out more about all this, uh, all of this and the big adjustment, let's bring in Don Danko, Ward 7 trustee, Hamilton-Wentworth District School Board, also chair of the Finance and Facilities Committee. Don is with us now. Don, thanks for the time. Much appreciated. Uh, good afternoon, Scott. So how big a deal is this, Don? Is this going to be uh, uh, a big deal come November, or uh, is this just giving the tools to, to the teachers that they need to to have a, 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 you know, a reasonable, responsible classroom? So our board has been quite proactive. We've been having discussions about how do we manage technology in schools and in classrooms for the past term. Um, over the past few years, I've been advocating for um, some changes to our policies and procedures. And so we have already landed on language that's quite similar to what the province is using in their code of conduct within our code of conduct. And ours is a little bit grayer. It says that we promote the use of, of uh, personal devices for educational purposes as directed by the educator in classrooms. We don't, we don't take that line that uh, students are expected as part of the code of conduct now to ensure that they use personal devices for educational purposes. And I love the as directed by an educator because you, you can just imagine some of the students, the little smart Alex that uh, say, well, I'm learning something. I'm on YouTube. I just learned something about turtles. Uh, so uh, I think, I think what is, that the point of this is most, all, all teachers have to manage their classrooms. And they've been managing technology over the years. Back in my day, they would confiscate Walkmans if needed, right? So mm -hmm. technology has been shifting and teachers adapt to that. But I think what's nice about having this in the Provincial Code of Conduct is it sets the standard for the whole province. Um, it, it sets um, clear expectations for student behavior, and that's clear for now parents to understand what's expected in the classroom and why their students, their, their children may not respond to a text in the middle of the lesson. Um, and, and by doing that, um, it just creates some consistency, and I think it really further empowers teachers to use the tools that they already have um, to manage the classroom in a positive way. You talked about uh, clarifying rules, and, and this just pretty much does spell it out. I mean, if it's not for educational purposes or health or safety, then, uh, you know, th there's some explaining to do. Uh, right. That being said, is it just the students, or is it, like you said, parents who text their kids in the middle of what they know is a class and expect some sort of response? I mean, what's the parents' responsibility here, too? That's right, and we do have, um, for for students who are not of, of age, we have their parents sign a code of conduct and the students sign the code of conduct. And so if this is embedded in our, our board code of conduct, as it will have to be in November, um, and as I said, it, it already is embedded, just so the wording's a little different, 
um, then we're, we're getting people to sign up to say, I understand that personal devices won't be used during lessons for personal use. They're going to be used for educational purposes. Um, and so that helps us correct behavior when we see some problems where, where parents are getting a little antsy because they're not getting a response or they're texting their child when maybe that's not the best time. But more than anything, I think it allows teachers um, more clearly to say devices will get put away because we all know that um, there's actually some really good research about just having a device on your desktop, um, even if it's face down and you're not looking at it, just knowing there might be something on there that you need to see a new notification <laughs> will distract you from your learning. And it's and like the having a shell on the really desk and wondering. It's like having a shell on the desk and wondering what's underneath it. Exactly. Yeah. So, yeah. Um, so by by allowing um, empowering teachers to even have the students just put them in their lockers or put them away. Um, I, I think that's going to improve classroom management. I know some teachers already do that, but we do have, I would say, um, some variation in the way different teachers manage devices and sometimes uncertainty about, well, what can I do? Can I collect the phones? Am, am I liable if something happens to one? Uh, you know, can I have the principal collect the phones? So the, the province doesn't tell us how teachers will manage it in the classroom, but they've, they've set clearer expectations for students and families around what the expectations for behaviors at a student level. Are you expecting that there will be, you know, some kids that try to push the boundary, see what it is, see what the line in the sand is? Have you met our students? Of course. (laughs) I know. I'm saying that while I've got two kids in school, right? Exactly. And I do, too. And they push the boundaries at home, right? So I know any parent who's dealing with kids that are at that age where they're starting to dabble in in uh, either social media or gaming or anything on the computer, um, they will push boundaries every single day. And so again, that's where I think as a board, we now have an opportunity. We will need to update our language to uh, reflect the provincial language. Like I said, we've already got this rule in place, but it's a good opportunity to start having another conversation about how do we have clear expectations but clear consequences? Um, So as a board, what, what do we do when a student is pushing the boundary a little too far? And I think the more clear we are in our communication to families and students, the more they will fall into line and they, they will respect those expectations um, and, and behave well. How do you think the kids feel about this? Well, uh, I, I mean, nobody likes rules, that, that, but, but then again, you know, I mean, does it take some pressure off them? Well, it's interesting. So a number of students have already said that when other students are on devices and they've got a video up or they're they're checking their device and maybe sending even uh, messages to one another, that is disruptive to their learning. They're not able to pay attention the same way. And really what this is about is saying everyone in that classroom has the right to an environment where they can learn. And so when there are disruptions and distractions, we see this elementary, secondary, and post-secondary at college and university, it is a disruption. It's also a disruption for teachers. Um, you see someone doing something, you know they're not paying attention yeah. to the lesson, and you know they're looking at something on your on the device. You then have to change your plan of action. Am I going to move around the room? Am I going to call them out? It, cha- it changes the flow of the lesson, and that can interrupt learning. Um, so a number of students have identified that they would really appreciate this. Um, some students say, you know, I know I shouldn't check my device but it's so tempting. So I would rather have it put away and have times that I'm allowed to check it. That it helps them manage themselves. And so, yes, some students, like my son, would rather be on a device all day if he could. Yeah. Um, but that, that's why we have those rules, because he's not making the best choices yet. We're teaching him what are healthy habits, what is responsible use, what is respectful use in different environments. 
Um, and, and so, yes, there will be pushback, but I think as it becomes the normal, um, we will see more and more students learning how to behave well with their devices. Has public perception of this issue changed uh, in the last uh, few months? I mean, when this was first announced, there was a lot of, you know, oh, you're never going to be able to do this. My God, it's, it's taking technology out of the hands of kids, blah, 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 blah. And then sort of common sense prevailed. Has, have attitudes changed with this? I, I believe there has been a shift because the, the initial language was about banning. And the same thing happened when we had our policy discussions at our board two years ago. They were like, well, I wouldn't ban a comic book at why would I ban a personal device because it's a you know a, a wealth of information but it always seemed to, it always, on the device but there always seemed to be some common sense around it that you know I mean if it's not used for educational or health or safety which is where we are I mean was it right. that complicated an issue you'd be surprised um, <laughs> <laughs> you'd be surprised uh, again because we do want to encourage our students to be independent learners we want them to you know Absolutely. If, if they're interested in something engage in inquiry and learn deeply about it so the devices are a great tool to do that mm-hmm. but it's amazing how even if they're even if they're in the middle of a project and they're looking something up the way devices are designed is to grab your attention and yeah. to distract you right it's, it's you've got social media popping up a text popping up saying look at me and pulling their attention away from the work at hand um, so as much as they are beneficial devices in a lot of ways, we, we just need to help students understand how to manage those distractions and, and really when to put devices away. And I, I, if I could say, if you ever watch uh, board meetings that are live streamed, council meetings, and I'm not picking on particular boards or councils, if you go to any kind of um, you know professional meeting, mm-hmm. you will see professionals on their phones when they should be paying attention to what's happening at the meeting. Mm. It happens, and so I think we're, um, as, a, as a society, we're starting to, to think about, well, is that respectful? Is that appropriate? And what should our culture be? What should our expectations be? And with our students, we have an opportunity to really build um, that, that sense of what is respectful youth and what is positive youth. Well said. Uh, how difficult an adjustment do you think this is going to be? They've uh, said this goes effect November. I guess that makes sense as opposed to September. Uh, you know, there's enough stuff going on at the beginning of school. What about the adjustment period here? What do you think that's going to be like for, for students? Well, as I mentioned for our board, um, it isn't a big change. Um, in fact, I would expect the status quo to, to stand. I expect that we will have some really good communication going out about it. Mm-hmm. Uh, if we have to change our code of conduct, we need to look at logistically, do we need to get everyone to sign off on the new code of conduct with the one-line change? Um, but I, as I said, it's already really in the, the intent of the statement is embedded in our code of conduct, just the language is a little different. Um, so I would say that you know our teachers are going to continue to do the good work that they do in classrooms, but I think it's an opportunity for our board to have bigger conversations about are there some clear expectations and standards and maybe consequences that we might want to embed in a, a policy or a procedure at the board level? We haven't done that yet. We do like to provide schools and teachers with some autonomy and flexibility so they can manage their environment as it works for them because we know you know, different schools and different classrooms are, are going to function differently. But I think the more clear we are on expectations and consequences from a high level, the more we will get buy-in from parents and families, the, the less confusing it will all be. Um, I guess I can give you an example. You know, some people would say, why do you even need this statement? It's common sense. Teachers already manage the classrooms. However, if you have two children in two different classrooms and maybe two different schools, yeah. the, the rules are very different. 
Um, they're, they're, they're quite diverse. And it can be very confusing from a parent perspective, like what can the teacher do? What can't they do? Mm-hmm. And the last thing we want is teachers arguing with parents about what they can and can't do in their classroom. So let's make that clear. And, you know, you, you, you alluded to this, and, and many have asked, how are you going to police this? How are you going to discipline this sort of thing? But again, now that the rules are made clear and the guidelines are clear, there is no real you know, need for a judge and jury on, on every issue on this. They're, the guidelines are what they are. Right. And now the guidelines don't say what the consequence is. It doesn't say you'll have yeah. your phone taken away or your device taken away or that you'll be... Um, prohibited from bringing it to school, but that is an action that could be taken right. um, if it was deemed appropriate. So I think the, initially this will be a great opportunity to continue the education that we're already doing with our students about expectations and, and with anything, with any new change, um, and as I said, we've been doing this for the past number of years, mm-hmm. we want to make sure we're educating and helping students build their skills. So if it's challenging for them to follow this expectation, how do we just support them in, in following it? Uh, how do we do that in a positive way first? And then, you know, if, if the behavior continues, then we need to have some consequences. And again, like you've said, you, you would deal with those as if you would any other disciplinary uh, action that you would at the school. I mean, that, that's all based on, on an in, or all done on an individual basis. And what this is, is it opens up the discussion and it's a great starting point, isn't it? Exactly. I, I think it's positive uh, from my perspective. And, um, you know, I, I've heard a lot of boards saying, well, we're already doing this. Teachers are already managing their classrooms. But it does add that additional level of clarity about what the expectation is. And I think it's a very good expectation that provides some flexibility so that educators can use the devices for educational purposes. I know for, for my uh, children, they got to use cell phones to take videos of them speaking French. Mm. And it was a group project. And they got really excited about it, yeah. you know, maybe for the wrong reason. But the fact is they engaged in the French lesson and they learned. Yeah. Um, so we want teachers to do that whenever possible. But it means that, you know, if, if collecting cell phones is the best way to manage in a classroom, maybe that's what the teacher is going to do. And we need to support them in doing that. Well said. Don Danko has been with us. Ward 7 trustee, Hamilton Wentworth District School Board, also chair of the Finance and Facilities Committee. Uh, Don, thanks so much for the time. Much appreciated. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. We are at Burlington Spencer Smith Park on the Lakeshore Brant and uh, Lakeshore Road. Um, just follow the just follow the smell, man. Follow your nose. Uh, stages end to end across Spencer Smith Park in the middle. Tons of rivers, tons of rigs, flags, banners, uh, trophies. Like as far as the eye can see, uh, hardware that these people have won during various during various competitions across North America. This is going on uh, all weekend long. It's going to be a fabulous, a fabulous weekend weather-wise. So make sure you get your butts down here and uh, don't wear white. That's the only thing I suggest. And uh, and some comfortable shoes and get ready to eat. Bring your appetite. We're going to introduce you to another river here. Uh, we're going to introduce you to Bernie Girl. He is with Camp 31. You've been here since the original, 24 years. Is that right? We're the original team that came to Canada. I remember that many yep. years ago. Uh, remember the first one to now. How has it changed? Well, uh, we were actually the only team that showed up that year from the States. The other guys couldn't get across the board, whatever the deal was. <laughs> yeah. But uh, when we first got here, pulled pork, uh, you know, we did up some pulled pork, and, and people in Canada, they had no idea what 
pulled yeah. pork was. So yeah. they looked at it, and, and we had to sample it. Yeah. Almost, we gave away so much pork that year yeah. just yeah. to get people to understand what pork was. What it was about. And, uh, boy, it's exploded here now. You know, you can't go to a, anywhere without seeing pulled pork on a menu, right? And it's amazing, too, that you guys have inspired so many Canadian teams to get into this as well. Yeah, for sure. We're Like I said, you know, when you're... When you're top of the leaderboard, everybody wants to be part of the program. So talk about what it's like to be a river, what you guys do, going from place to place in the rigs that you bring. Yeah, everybody thinks we're like weekend warriors, but this is actually a full-time job. So yeah. it is a seven-day-a-week. We start somewhere in May and we end end of September, depending yeah. on what happens in between. But we... Um, we, we set up usually on a Wednesday or Thursday, and we tear down on a Sunday or Monday. We yeah. drive Tuesday, yeah. and we cook all weekend. So yeah. there is no, let's have a day off. Yeah, exactly. The there season's no here. Off. You do it. Yeah. And what's amazing is, and there's judging here all weekend long, and of course on Monday I believe they have the actual official judging, but also uh, people get a chance to vote uh, as well, people who are sampling all these ribs. And there's trophies and such everywhere. Talk about the sauces, what goes into them, and how did you expand from like one great sauce to all this stuff that's on the table in front of us? Yeah, well, the, the original sauce was actually made in a kitchen. That's how it started with the restaurant. And um, although now we produce it, we have someone produce it for us, yeah. it has not changed since the day we made it, and that's yeah. why we're successful. Um, we've come up with a sauce and a rub and a smoke that actually layers on top of each other and makes a phenomenal rib. So when yeah. you bite into it, you'll know exactly who it came from. You'll know it's Camp 31 by biting into it. And how many people, when they come down here, are like, hey, I, we love this stuff. Give us a bottle of it. You must go through a ton of this stuff. Yeah, we, um, we bring lots here. It's, yeah. It is the end of the season, so yeah. we're trying to run out of stuff as well. So <laughs> yeah. um, we, we have lots of sauce, and we do sell them. They're like 7 bucks a piece, and you can buy a four-pack. Talk about the sauces you've got in front of us. Um, we have our original, of course. That's our... Uh, sweet and tangy. That's the one. And you can sample them as we go right. here. Um, that that one there. That's our original. We put on all our ribs when this we're is cooking. The, and this is first place, right? That is yeah. first place. Yeah. That was our first place sauce right yeah. there. Mm. And that's where it started. So you can tell right off the bat yeah. that's going to go good on. You know, you can use that on everything, right from eggs in the morning, like ketchup. My kids <laughs> eat it like ketchup. So could we keep going, keep going. Yeah, and then we we someone wanted something hot, so we developed like a hot hot barbecue. So hot barbecue and a hot sauce are two different animals. Right. Hot barbecue you put on, it caramelizes, it, it brings out the sugars, and it kind of gives a crisp outside. Right. Hot sauce is table hot sauce where you pour it on top. Right. Yeah, so yeah, the difference yeah, yeah. between people want to know hot sauce and hot barbecue are two different animals. Talk about the white sauce here, because you got like six, seven sauces here, but the white one stands out. Talk about this, because uh, this is, you know, I'm not expecting this, but yeah. you know, I haven't had my rear end down to Alabama, and right. clearly I need to go. Tell so, us, talk so about this. What we did when we developed all these sauces, depending on where we were at a rib fest, so we do it throughout the states. If we're in the Carolinas, we'll use a honey, or sorry, mustard-based sauce. Yeah. Uh, bull barbecues in Texas, right? So um, we developed like a chipotle, which gives a little a jerk when we're a little yeah. lower. So Alabama is a sweet. And we did the sweet barbecue, but also really unique to Alabama. You'll find in any restaurant you go to, a barbecue restaurant, you will find their barbecue white yeah, sauce. Yeah. Now, you don't cook with it. Um, what we do is we use it for topping. Yeah. So it is an add-on. It's like dipping sauce. We use it in our bean salad at the restaurant. Uh, we use it on all our chicken, uh, chicken dishes. So any of the dips, like if you have chicken fingers, whatever, you get a, a dipping sauce as an Alabama white. And it, we describe it as a... Um, I, it's like a spicy now. peppercorn, but it is so hot right now. That is um, beautiful. You'll be able to find it on the shelves at like lots of imitation going on, never repeated. That's beautiful. Um, most of them are very vinegar based, 
Canadians don't like their vinegar-based items, so um, we've made it a little more creamy, and it's really a hot seller. So tell us about the restaurant. Uh, well, we have two restaurants, uh, Bruton, Alabama, and Paris, Ontario. And, and uh, does all did all of this start in the restaurant, or did the restaurant come after this? No, the restaurants came first. Yeah. So it actually started on Highway 31 yeah. in Bruton, Alabama, yeah. and it used to be called the Camp because yeah. that's where you used to go and uh, buy your beer and your groceries and your milk, and that's where all the where logging guys. Off, yeah. That's where they went. They went to the camp. So naturally, the two words went together, Camp 31, and that's how we got our name. Um, but it's been there for. Well, 1984, that's when we started it, and it's been hot ever since. How do we get this stuff if we can't make it to RibFest? Uh, Camp31.com. You can order online. We ship it everywhere, including across the big pond. All right. Camp31.com to find out more. Bernie, great stuff. Thanks hey, so thanks much. thanks for having me. In. Bernie's been here since the original, 24 years ago, and uh, you're coming next year, 25. That should be pretty hey, good. these out? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, go for it. Uh, he's got all kinds of swag here. Come down and check out Bernie Camp 31 and all of the rest that are uh, here for the 24th edition of Canada's largest rib fest. Next year, 25th. I can't believe how they're going to top this. Uh, weather's great. Love to see you here. We're coming back. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. Uh, lots to talk about on today's show, uh, especially with the Chitlins going back to school on Labor Day as we head into the final unofficial weekend of summer. A lot of people driving around, too, and uh, are, uh, are as well. Sorry, as it's a little windy here. Are as well uh, taking road trips for the last long weekend of the summer. Uh, you may no- you may notice the rules are now in place for gas stations to have anti-carbon tax stickers on the gas pumps across the province. Uh, those are uh, the stickers that uh, Doug Ford was talking about, in which uh, explain where your money is going over, the, I guess, the course of the next few years. And some have uh, said this isn't a good idea simply because it's not a balanced uh, position of, of, of what these stickers are supposed to represent. That being said, you know, stickers as to where your tax dollars go and such and how much of the percentage of, of a price of a liter of gasoline uh, goes to tax and such, those have been there forever. To talk more about all of this, Dan McTagg is with his former Liberal MP, Senior Petroleum al- uh, Analyst, GasPriceWizard.com. He's with us now. Dan, thanks for the time as always. Much appreciated. Good to be here, and I uh, wish I was there actually with you. It is a little hard to stay focused, Dan, if you know what I mean. <laughs> Been there, actually. I was there two years ago. Oh, it's unbelievable, and yeah, yeah. the smell, and the ribs, yeah. and uh, and there's the more than just... It's beautiful. You can see the beautiful Burlington Bridge from there and everything. So, oh, absolutely, uh, yeah. yeah. And there's more than just ribs. Some lady walked by me with one of those blooming onion things about the size of my head. Anyway, ah. I digress. <laughs> So uh, let's talk about stickers, because there's been stickers on pumps for a while telling us what percentage of, um, uh, of a price of a liter of gasoline goes to uh, tax and such. Uh, what do we have now? What, are, what is coming? Well, this is really the calm before the storm. And, uh, I'm of course, uh, recognizing that you're paying about $0.05 cents a liter uh, on the uh, uh, carbon tax at $20 a ton, heading to $50 a ton in about 20, call it 26 months, 27 months. Uh, you'll see prices move up an additional seven cents a liter with uh, HST, which of course is often forgotten by both levels of government, but it is compounded. It's also not rebated, and it does uh, really uh, add to the cost of living. And it's not just gasoline; it's diesel, which goes up even higher, uh, which is now closer to six point one cents a liter, heading uh, towards about uh, fourteen cents a liter, uh, and uh, natural gas, uh, propane, uh, jet fuel, rail fuel. So. 
you know, all those wonderful things you see around you right now that are being cooked, all the transportation involved with making these things happen, it means that the price and the cost of living is going up. And by the way, it's not going to be covered by the federal rebate. Uh, not only do they admit that only 80% is going to go back, whatever that should mean, uh, there are indirect costs, massive indirect costs, like the cost of food, transportation, and things like that, that will increase the cost of living, which will not be protected. So, yeah, you're going to get your $300 rebate, uh, but if we have a colder winter or we have a warmer summer or, you know, we go beyond the average median 1.4 uh, children in a family, uh, you're likely to uh, see a big hit on your bottom line. Unfortunately, the rebate only goes to certain people, and for most, it won't be enough. Uh, obviously, election coming in the fall. Uh, Catherine McKenna um, sort of backtracking on talking about all of this at one t- at this point. Uh, even a clip somewhere of her saying, I'm not talking about this, it's an election. Uh, there's an election on the horizon. Uh, do you think people are fully aware of, of, of the increases we're about to see? No, they're not. And they're completely oblivious to what could happen in 61 days if they decide to uh, reward uh, four of the six parties running in Canada that want to keep this... Uh, wrong-headed, uh, uh, really, wealth redistribution tax, uh, or if you will, call it for what it really is, an attempt to try to say we can change the weather tax. Uh, the reality for, for all of us has to be that uh, this government has every intention of moving beyond $50 a ton to $102 a ton, which is what the parliamentary budget officer said we needed to do to meet our uh, Paris uh, Accord obligations. Of course, if it's a real good mandate for the federal liberals or they have a strong uh, minority propped up by the Green Party, you know, sky's the limit, $300 a, uh, a ton. But I don't get carried away. The fact is, this is going to lead to a much higher cost of living for everybody at a time when Canada is doing its uh, its, its best to, uh, to get its uh, environmental house in order, at a time when our oil industry is suffering tremendously with 30 to 40 billion bucks being ripped out of our economy. Uh, and, you know, you can only skew the numbers so many good ways. Uh, sooner or later, you have to recognize that Governments are running into major debts and deficits in order to sustain our standard of living. Uh, are you... Have we lost Dan? No, no, no. Oh, here he's back here. Yep. Sorry, Dan, Dan, go ahead. We lost you there for a second. Yeah, no, I just want to say, I mean, folks are going to have to really clue into this. If they think that the world is coming to an end in 12 years and, uh, uh, you know, we have this kind of hysteria running par- policy in this country... And we're shutting down our energy sector, shutting down our manufacturing sector as a corollary, forcing jobs south of the border to other jurisdictions. Sooner or later, this is going to catch up with us. And statisticians and all the folks out there that think this is without consequence have to understand that our biggest trading partners aren't on board with this kind of stuff. Mm. So you have to make sure that uh, you're not losing the public. My guess is that the next couple of months, people are just, you know, taking it easy. Everything's fine. We're going to be fed, uh, you know... (laughs) Uh, you know, a diet of everything's perfect and uh, don't worry about all this government expenditure. And by the way, we've just increased the national debt by $70 billion when we said we would balance the books. Uh, these are very serious times that we're about to enter. And I sense that there is going to be a global recession. And with that, Canada is most vulnerable. Uh, at a time when it should have been saving money, it was instead spending. And that really is unfortunate, but it's likely to lead to uh, unintended consequences for a lot of people out there who think uh, everything's just fine and they're worried about image or their their uh, their idea of a good leader is somebody who has nice soft selfies and does the odd bit of sobbing. 
Where is the public on this? Because, you know, I mean, I'm reading quotes in an article right now. Uh, I don't mind paying more as long as I'm doing something for the environment. Is is this a way to, to raise yeah. revenue and, and make people feel like they're doing something when really well, we're not doing anything people, that's going to make a hill of difference? People, uh, Scott, and, and tell them that there is a problem. The problem is overextend. I'm waiting for people to say that Hurricane Dorian is the result of climate change, um, when in fact we've had probably one of the quietest hurricane seasons. But that aside, I think, relatively speaking, I mean, it's nice to say these things. When I was a politician, and I spoke to the people at Revenue Canada and uh, various departments, you know, having people out there convinced that they should be paying for something without really understanding what they're paying for, much less that it will have any appreciable effect, that's music to the ears of uh, those out there who are trying to pick your pocket, fleece you, and use, uh, you know, trendy, cute examples to try to tell you why we should be paying more. Look, if we want to do something for the environment, just look, you know, 100 feet from where you are. Let's do something to clean up the lakes and not dump raw sewage in it. Uh, That's something this this federal government was responsible for, not just once, but several times. We want to do something with the sky, want to do something with cleaning up pollution. I'm, you know, I think we're all on board with that. But to suggest that an inert gas like CO2 necessary for the, you know, the existence of life is somehow uh, leading to uh, cataclysmic climate change, in my view, is, uh, is, is, is just not presented properly and i think there's as many scientists out there who will say that's not correct those who are directly related to this particular field as those who will there are also others who are suggesting it has much more to do with the sun uh with the uh, grand solar minimum things like that so i don't want to get into the debate of that the reality is it's not settled anybody who su- suggests it's settled i think it's just being ignorant and uh, as well no scientists are by themselves and by their own nature skeptical I hear a lot more saying maybe we weren't right on this we certainly weren't right 12 years ago when i campaigned with stefan dion said the world was coming to an end, and the Al Gore's of this world were saying we'd be under three feet of water. So, you know, they got it wrong then, they've got it wrong now, and they're going to get it wrong down the road. What I'm worried about is they cause significant dislocation to the economy. Let's let our environmental, industrial complex work well together and to make the kind of adjustments and changes, but don't bludgeon but you're people not denying and those don't changes. take away their You're not line. denying those changes need to be made. I think any change towards improving the environment is always an, an important one. I think we're doing that. We just don't give ourselves credit for it. Uh, what we're getting is uh, you know, a dose of, of hysteria day in, day out, saying that the world is coming to an end in 12, we're, 12 years, yeah. and you know, the polarized caps are melting. Uh, you know, without any objective way in which to make these things uh, true, what we're actually getting is a lot of people, it's almost a default thing. I see this in the media, too. There's no offense to you or anyone here at HML or anyone across Canada, but it's almost routine to hear people that I've known as media over the past 20 to 30 years, and I have worked with them. You know, you get a bad weather season. 20 years ago, it was all dry. It was climate change. This year, it's now wet. It's all climate change. Yeah. You know, you can't make those assumptions without understanding that there are governments lining up and people lining up to use those as excuses to pilfer and to basically control the public purse in a way that we would never allow otherwise democratically and politically. And what's likely to lead is not just economic dislocation. What's happening now across Canada and eastern Canada may be most people having a good time oblivious. You've got a part of this country that's prepared to pack up and go. It's called Mm -hmm. Alberta. And if we continue down this path, if you think uh, the... A fight to keep Quebec in uh, the Federation was something. Wait till you deal with what's going on in Alberta. I'm not saying that because I certainly don't want to see that happen. I'll fight to the end to keep this country united. But there's a lot of people who believe that they're getting a raw deal in this country. They're producing oil. They're producing where you're extracting the resources. We're creating revenue for the country. Quebec is cashing big checks through equalization that Trudeau, uh, you know, refused to make any changes to. While Alberta's on its knees, Alberta's paying the freight 
Quebec is cashing the check and says no to pipelines. Mm. This is how our federation is becoming unfurled, and I think it's important that we recognize it does come to the bottom line to the Prime Minister, who's pursuing a policy of divide and conquer, and it's likely to lead to significant tensions in your federation. At the same time, bring this country to the financial brink. All right, getting back to the stickers, which we were talking about, uh, that Doug Ford is and the Conservatives are uh, are putting on gas pumps. Are these a good idea, or does this just make everybody cynical about the whole debate? <laughs> I've heard you know, some of your sister stations. I'm in London right now, uh, moving my son and getting ready for university like everyone else is, and I heard one of the stations down here had someone saying, well, it may not be a good idea for the Ford government to go challenge the uh, federal government on carbon taxes because it gives the impression that somehow the Liberals are going to win. Look, the next federal election is going to see a minority government with the Liberals propped up by the Greens and the NDP, if I'm reading the cards right. Uh, so it really doesn't matter. We need to you know, look at these and, re- I think, raise for people a better understanding that uh, while they're being force-fed in schools, that uh, the sky is falling, that the climate change is bringing about the, the change to the world, uh, the likes of which we've never seen, uh, I think we need a bit of a dose of reality. I don't know if the stickers are the best way to go about it, but I think there has to be a serious pushback because the way it's going now, uh, it's likely to lead to significant harm to consumers as well as to jobs and to our economic and social viability as a country. And I think that's far more important. That's where I think all of this is leading to. I don't think the Ford government is doing a great job at it. I think they should be far more, uh, you know, strident in terms of where their attacks need to be to be to be measured. And that's not just on gasoline. It should be on food. It should be at every grocery store. Uh, it certainly should be on every uh, bill dealing with natural gas and home heating come October, November, when you're turning your furnaces on. God, it just seems like yesterday we still had them on until the end of May, early June. I think that's where you, you remind people that uh, this is not an excuse for governments to pilfer. This is an excuse for governments to make sure that they get it right. And if they're going to tax this thing, that we're all on board. And right now, everyone's on board because they don't see it. It's a bit of a switch, a you know, bait and switch. We're going to give you money back and take money on the one hand. Well, if that's the case, then how are you going to be, get people to slow down their, their purchases of whatever they're purchasing that you don't like, contributing to fossil, to, uh, sorry, to uh, greenhouse gases? If you're going to give me back as much, if not more money than what I'm paying out or than, than I'm being taxed, then that will not achieve the goal. So I think there's a bit of hypocrisy in terms of the way this has played out. I think there's a lot of just criticism for what the federal government's done on both sides, those who are opposed to it and those who are truly true believers that we have to have carbon taxes that cripple the economy. Uh, what about the government, provincial government, challenging this in the Supreme Court? I, again, all politics, worth it? Is it, is it worth it well, in the sense that it keeps it in the public's eye? I think the government said originally it wasn't going to do it. Uh, it was going to wait out the election. But I think uh, you know, there is a you know, decision to go ahead, I think, reflects the reality that this is going to be a hung parliament. Why wait two or three months uh, when, you know, we need a decision from the Supreme Court? And I'm probably a little different than uh, some of the other ones that they're saying, oh, well, you know, they've lost uh, in the lower courts in Saskatchewan and Ontario for very different reasons, the application of peace, order, and good government. I don't want to get into the legality of all. I did study constitutional law in university. I had great people like Peter Russell at the University of Toronto uh, as one of my mentors, uh, but I also read Hogg and many others. So just so we have, you know, people out there who think uh, they know all about constitutional law. Very different tests at the federal level, and I think that's why we've, we haven't seen slam dunks. We haven't seen 3 nothing in both cases. In one, it was 3-2. to two. The other decision was 2-1. to one. So there is a residual belief out there that the federal government has overstepped its boundaries. Nine of the ten provinces see this as an intrusion on provincial rights. Forget the issue of constitutionality of the 
appropriateness of the federal government being able to impose. Nine out of ten, even Quebec says this is going too far, and they will join the federal uh, appeal. So I think there's a lot more to this, and I think uh, it may, by the time we get around to a decision by the Supreme Court, assuming, of course, we'll hear it, uh, we, it could be another year from now. Uh, where will the pipeline be come election time, the Trans Mountain Pipeline? Yeah, you know, we had the Minister of Energy, uh, uh, Natural Resources, going out and saying, oh, the uh, applications have gone out and uh, the calls for bids and uh, uh, construction have begun. Uh, I'm not clear that that's happened. That was a week ago. So you have to wait and see. I'm waiting uh, from the folks that I know who work for some of the big energy companies out there that are involved uh, that uh, will let me know pretty quickly. They're a little disappointed uh, when the federal minister goes out and says, uh, the call for work has begun and that uh, they're starting to set up uh, various camps in Kamloops, uh, Edmonton, uh, and in, of course in, uh, in around uh, uh, Vancouver. Uh, when none of that has happened yet, uh, you, you kind of wonder. And I know locations on the Trans Mountain Pipeline that I would expect uh, to see some activity. One is called the Kamloops Loop. <laughs> Sounds kind of strange, but that's exactly one of the big ones. And if that, there's movement there, that would be a sign to me that this is moving. As I, as I said to you before, Scott, and I'm going to say it again, uh, I think this thing's DOA, especially if there's a minority government propped up by the Greens and the NDP who want to kill any kind of pipeline in this country. So will the Prime Minister just ride the fence on this until uh, the election? Will, the, will we see any sort of active movement showing that it has started? Uh, I think you'll see it start and you'll see it stop. Uh, but it doesn't really matter because you're on the hook. And apparently Canadian taxpayers don't have a problem with the federal government uh, spending its way out of problems. Uh, apparently 31% are really good with the country going into debt and deficit, and another 20 to 30% are supporting other parties that have no problems, like the Bloc and the NDP, uh, and to a lesser extent the Green in uh, getting us into a financial hawk in order to prove their point. So, you know, <laughs> the, uh, the chips are down when 60% of Canadians apparently uh, are good with the federal government incurring massive debts and uh, buying pipelines uh, for the intention of not, or the purpose of not building one, uh, whether that is by omission or commission, the reality is pretty much the same. You have two-thirds of Canadians who, uh, frankly, don't see the connection between a viable energy sector, a viable natural resources sector, and their social programs like health, the hospitals, the pensions that we, uh, we take for granted, uh, our teachers' pay, our, everything uh, that really supports our infrastructure in this country. So, so I, there has to be a real, a, a real reconnection to Canadians as to the importance of these projects and their ability to uh, to make ends meet. So is the sticker issue over? Will this continue to grind out all uh, uh, for the rest of the summer and fall? Well, I think for some Opposition people it will it? be. Yeah, I mean, you're, you're going to get the, 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 critics, the critics, and they seem to be in much greater numbers. But I still think there's a hell of a lot of people that are going, what? I didn't know it was five cents a liter. <laughs> I, get, I get that all the time. You know, people forget. They're not, they're not into the business. But you know what? In, I can tell you in 2008, uh, when uh, the Hurricane Ike struck the coast of uh, uh, the Gulf Coast of the United States and caused a 12 centiliter spike in one evening during the federal election, I had the conservatives on the ropes because I said that shouldn't have happened. This is oil companies passing on higher prices, you know, and, and so on. I thought I had the federal conservatives on the ropes during that federal election up until my great leader, Stéphane Dion, said, People should just get used to these high prices. So I think people are going to have to get used to the idea. If they're going to be whimsical and all's fine and I want to do something for the environment, no problem. But be prepared to open your pocketbook. Be prepared to write a check. Be prepared to pay for things you can't currently afford because that's where you're heading. And I, I say that 
not to be vindictive or mean, but to actually spell out to people in very broad language, you're supporting policies you can neither afford and will not achieve the objective of your goodwill. Dan McTagg has been with us, former Liberal MP, Senior Petroleum Al- uh, Analyst, GasPriceWizard.com. Dan, as always, thanks for the time. Have a great long weekend. You too. I'll, I'll enjoy, and boy, I'm, I'm envious. All right. Well, we'll try to blow some smoke down your way. Uh, I think we've done that. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. Will Erskine back at the house, unfortunately. Uh, Couldn't come out and play today down at Spencer Smith Park. Someone's got to be back to push the buttons and do all the real important things. Uh, But as they have let loose into the wild, uh, we are at Spencer Smith Park uh, between two stages, one at either end of the park. Uh, and then in between is just rows and rows of rivers. And I'm talking some incredible rigs here, uh, billboards, flags, uh, uh, rivers from, from as far away as Albuquerque, New Mexico, as well as lots of Canadian rivers who uh, have taken up the challenge. Hard to believe it's been 24 years. This is the 24th edition. Uh, and honestly, I believe I was at the very first. I was. I remember that. And uh, uh, we met earlier uh, Bernie from Camp 31 one of the original rivers that came up here i think there were supposed to be three americans coming up unfortunately only camp 31 got across the border you know things happen uh but anyway a great representation again today and a beautiful day gonna be a fabulous weekend i keep swallowing because i'm eating I've, i've eaten so much it just never ends and uh, it's going to be a great weekend all weekend long, so come down and, and uh, check it out. It is uh, a great event every single year, and the weather looks like it is certainly cooperating uh, with Canada's largest rib fest, the Burlington Rib Fest, Spencer Smith Park, uh, roughly uh, Branton Lakeshore. Uh, just follow your nose. You'll get here. All right, Global News doing a series of news stories on UFOs. UFOs? Ooh. Has the interest increased? Has it decreased? Where are we with all of this? Let's bring in Mike Droulet, Toronto correspondent, Global National. He is with us now. Mike, thanks for the time. Much appreciated. Thank you very much for having me. So how much interest is there in UFOs? Is this cyclical? Are we in a point where where a lot of people are interested? Or has a lot of this stuff been debunked? Uh, it's not cyclical. It's been pretty steady since the 50s that uh, you know there's been interest in UFOs. Uh you know what? You actually might even say that there's there's more interest now because with the advent of you know cell phone cameras and everybody's got a camera, everybody's got a video going somewhere, um, there's just a lot more out there that people are taking shots of. Does that mean that it's all you know unidentifiable? No. I mean, there's this group in Canada called MUFON that investigates these occurrences, and they find that about 90% of the stuff that they're sent is identifiable. It's planes, it's, uh, it's satellites, it's... Uh, balloons, uh, that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. About 5 to 8% are stuff that they can't explain, stuff that's just strange. And uh, that's how they classify it. That It's just an unknown thing. When people think of UFOs, they think of spaceships and people coming from other planets. UFO, not necessarily that, correct? Not always? No, I mean, it's... it's, it's <laughs> not always, it's, listen how to it's me. The definition, it's, yeah. it's unidentified flying object, yeah. right? So it's unidentified. I mean, there's some people who think, who look at UFOs and they go immediately, yeah, it's alien. Mm-hmm. And sure, I mean, there's a lot of believers like that. But it's, and, and it could be, who's to say it's not? But it's just, I mean, just for, for everyone to understand, it's an unidentified flying object. And we have seen quite a few of them over the last couple of years that are really unexplainable. Uh, let's start with that, because it seems that we can pretty much explain most of them. What can't we explain? 
Well, I mean, there's there's two things. There's two elements to the whole sort of alien culture. There's, you know, the people who say that they've been abducted. The uh, They actually call themselves experiencers now. Well, that one's a little harder for people to grasp. Experiencers. Experiencers. Yeah, it's a really hard one to sort of get get your teeth around your... Because, you know, it's it's your mind around it. And because there's people... There's no proof of it. It's just people who are saying, yes, I was taken away. Mm-hmm. And, okay, how, how what do you say about that? But then there's always those videos that you see, like, I mean, from the 2004 USS Nimitz in the, uh, in the U.S., which was released by the Pentagon, of these strange shapes which are flying faster than U.S. fighter jets. That's kind of a hard one to explain. Or there was one just a couple of years ago over Hass Lake, Alberta, um, where there was this, uh, this a small object that was caught on a drone camera, and it was moving at exceptional speeds. And then a very similarly shaped object was seen in two other spots around the globe. What is that? It's hard to explain. Are there similarities with sightings that uh, have happened, you know, say in one part of the world, and then, yeah, I saw the same sort of thing in another part of the world, or are these pretty much different every time? Are there any consistency to these? Well, there are a lot of consistencies. People, uh, I mean, a lot of people see lights, but those are usually explainable. Mm -hmm. Um, There's different shaped things. There's stuff that are triangular. There's stuff that... uh, you know, square, obviously this stuff that people say are round like... Uh, no, but I guess the uh, point that like I'm making, saucers. have there been any scenarios where there's been an accurate description of something and someone else saw the exact same thing? Yeah, there's been there's been quite a bit of that. Um, people have, have caught stuff on cameras, like with this Hass Lake situation, and, uh, and then they look and they say, wait a second, that seems like it's the same thing. How is that over in Europe? But, it's, but it was over here before. Mm-hmm. Uh, a lot of the stuff is very similar. And, you know, they look through it. And, you, and a lot of people also say, okay, well, you know, it's a hoax. People are making this stuff up. Well, yeah. you can tell if it is or isn't. I mean, there's a lot of this stuff. They say about 1% to 2% of all the stuff that comes out is a hoax. But it's getting harder and harder to fake, what with the quality of video that's out there. Uh, and it's, you know, and really it's people just, because there's so much out there, they're finding it less... Uh, they're, they're less inclined to actually put a hoax together. Many have said, uh, you know, uh, uh, these always seem to happen with their situations where there's not necessarily that many people seeing them. They could be in rural areas, what have you. Uh, why don't we ever see any of these happening like in New York City or Chicago or Toronto or Hamilton or wherever? Well, because we know that most people in New York City are aliens to begin with. Hey-ho! Uh, no. Uh, you know what? I mean, that's one of the things that they say. I mean, these invest- the investigators for uh, this MUFON group are like, you know what? The thing that really frustrates us is that, you know, we have all these cameras and videos, but nobody knows how to shoot. <laughs> nobody yeah. knows how to shoot. The videos are always grainy. They're always uh, shaky. They're always from far away. Uh, it's really hard to sort of get a good video. Every once in a while, there is something decent like the one from the USS Nimitz or the, uh, the one in the, with the drone. Uh, there is something, and that's really kind of harder to really kind of debunk. But, yeah, I mean, it just seems that we just don't have that great a history with getting really good video of stuff. And, and you know what, and you're right, there, is, there are a lot of cases where it's just one person who says they saw something, and, you know, that's, it's hard to believe because there was one person, like one of the most famous ones, in Canada happened in 1967 in Falcon Ridge uh, in, uh, I believe it's Saskatchewan, where um, a man, a prospector, says he saw a couple of ships, and then he was, uh, he somehow ended up getting radiation poisoning. And then mm. nine months later had these strange marks appear on his body, which is why a lot of people in UFOs say that it's actually 
one of those unexplainable ones. But then there was also a case in Shag Harbor, Nova Scotia, where over a dozen people in different locations, including an RCMP officer, saw something crash land into the waters. There were no planes around. There was no debris. All there was was oily sea foam. Try to explain that. Mm. I mean, so that was one of those ones where you had a lot of people seeing it uh, from different spots. And it was, uh, and that's probably one of the more famous ones in Canada. When can we see all this, Mike? Well, the part one, which we did yesterday, is on our uh, globalnews.ca, and it's also on our YouTube channel. Uh, part two uh, is tonight on Global National. It will be uh, an interesting one because we, we speak to a man named Victor Vigiani who has made it his life's goal to try to expose the truth and to get the documents from governments that show that, yes, our fighter jets have had come into contact with um, these various uh, alien ships. Mike Droulet has been with us, Toronto correspondent, Global National. Make sure you're watching Global National tonight at 5.30 and 6. And, of course, uh, take a peek for the series on UFOs. Mike, thanks for the time. Much appreciated. Thank you. We will probe deeply into this story. Thanks so much. It is 2.16. It's 900 CHML. I'm Scott Thompson. We are broadcasting live from Spencer Smith Park in Burlington. It is Canada's largest rib fest. Uh, we are right on Burlington's uh, lakefront, Spencer Smith Park. Love to hear you, uh, have you here and enjoy some ribs. Come on down. The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on 900 CHML. This is the Scott Thompson Podcast, available on Apple Podcast and Google Podcast or wherever you get yours. And don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review so you don't miss a thing. I'm Scott Thompson, and thanks for listening.